This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Well, welcome to the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher, Jeremy Myers. The day I'm recording this is the day after the presidential elections here in the United States. I don't know whether you are rejoicing or mourning today. Either way, though, life goes on. We can pray for the leaders of our country. And best of all, we can learn to live together in love and unity and respect. And continue to look to Scripture to see what God tells us about how to do this. That's what we're going to see today as we pick back up in Genesis 4, 9 through 12. And some uh, key concepts here about how God wants us to live in this life and how we typically live. Uh, In in fact, in Genesis 4, 10, we read that the blood of Abel cries out to God from the ground. Have you ever wondered what that means? What the blood of Abel said as it was crying out from the ground? Well, The book of Hebrews gives us a hint. We'll be looking at that question today in today's podcast episode. We'll also be discussing how Cain implied that God was guilty for the death of Abel and why God did not curse Cain for murdering his brother. All of this and more in today's study. It's a jam-packed episode, so buckle your seatbelts, hold on to your hats. Uh, I'm going to try to discuss all that today. But if you want to learn more about some of what I share in this podcast episode, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, The Atonement of God, on Amazon. Some of what I discuss in today's podcast episode, I also discuss in that book. If you haven't read it, just go to Amazon, search for The Atonement of God, buy a copy for yourself. Also makes a good uh, Christmas present for your friends, family, (laughs) if you buy multiple copies. You can also get the uh, the book in uh, an e-version, Kindle Kindle version, if you want, and uh, the book's available elsewhere, like on Google Play, iTunes Bookstore, Barnes & Noble, even Kobo, if you ever use them. So uh, that's the Atonement of God, available pretty much anywhere books are sold. So uh, let's take a look at Genesis 4, 9-12, to see what this passage teaches us about life and politics and economics and relationships and following God and how we operate in this life, pretty much everything else. And also a taste of some of what is in my book, The Atonement of God. Hang on, we're about to look at Genesis 4, 9 through 12. Okay, so as you may recall from Genesis 3... After Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God approached them and played a little game of 20 questions or 10 questions or something like that. He actually is only one or two questions, really. But he asked Adam and Eve what happened and he listened to their responses. And then he told them what the consequences of their actions would be. And here in Genesis 4, we pretty much see the exact same pattern repeated, except this time it is with Cain. Uh, Cain gave in to rivalry and desire, 
and he murdered his brother Abel. And so now God shows up and asks Cain about what happened. In Genesis 4, 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? So again, just as when God asked Adam, hey, did you eat from that tree which I told you not to eat from? God knows the question, the answer to the question that he asked Adam, and he knows the answer to the question that he's asking Cain here. But he wants to see what Cain says. That's why he asks it. It's a learning experience, a teaching experience for Cain and for all of us who are observing this. Uh, Back in Genesis 3, again, if you recall that, if you listen to those episodes, when God asked Adam what happened, you remember what Adam says. First, Adam blamed his wife. He pointed the finger at his wife. He said, the woman, right? (laughs) It's her fault. And then Adam goes on from there and he turns the finger and points at God. So he blames his wife and then he blames God. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, right? Uh, And this is sort of what I see going on just as a side note in all of this politics. There's all this finger-pointing, blame, scapegoating, accusation, name-calling, dehumanizing, demonizing, all this stuff going on. And none of that is going to help anybody. Again, I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what your political background is or political beliefs. It's not going to help anybody on either side to demonize and dehumanize and scapegoat and blame and accuse the other side of things they did or didn't do, said or didn't say. Okay, so uh, that's that's uh, the pattern that Moses, that God is revealing to us right from here in Genesis 3, Genesis 4. We never take responsibility for our own part in what is going on. We always choose to blame and scapegoat and accuse other people. Of course, accuse, the Hebrew word for accuser is Satan. So when we accuse, we are behaving satanically. We are accusatory. Uh, Anyway, all that's another subject. Uh, That's what we see going on here. Be very, very careful. Again, I don't care what your views are, but be very, very careful about accusing, scapegoating, blaming, demonizing, dehumanizing, turning others into monsters. That's not helpful, and it definitely does not look like Jesus. That's what Adam did. It's what Cain is doing here, and that's what we're seeing today as we study through this. So when God asks, where is your brother? Uh, Cain, uh, he's going to follow in his father's footsteps and uh, turn the finger, blame other people. And so here's what Cain says. He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? All right, so with this question, Cain, he's not directly pointing the finger at God the way Adam did, the way his father did, but he is indirectly blaming God. When Cain says, I don't know, It's like he's saying, you know, how should I know? Why are you asking me? Aren't you God? Don't you know? You know? Don't you know all things, God? Why are you coming to me with this? And then when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? He's essentially saying, you never told me to watch over my brother. He's not my responsibility. That's your job. In fact, scholars have sometimes pointed out that this word keeper... When when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper, that word for keeper, maybe a better translation would be nursemaid or babysitter, something like that. So Cain is saying, no one told me to babysit my brother. I mean, he's old enough. He can take care of himself. Am I supposed to watch over him all day long to see what he's doing, where he's going? No, I think that's your God job. That's your job, God. (laughs) That's essentially what Cain is saying. So, So Cain's words here to God 
are an attempt to avoid personal blame and shift this blame to God. Cain is saying, I'm not in charge of my brother. He's not my responsibility. I can't keep tabs on him all the time. But you, God, you know everything. You're the one in charge. If Abel is missing, it's your fault. I was looking through Facebook today, again, after the election results, and I've seen so many posts from people who are upset that Trump won, and they are now shifting blame and accusation and scapegoating and all this stuff on the people who voted for Trump and saying that, you know, everything that happens over the next four years, the blood of the future is on their heads. And, you know, again, all that sort of stuff is not going to be helpful. And I imagine if Hillary had won, a lot of the Trump voters would have been saying exactly the same thing. None of that is helpful. I also saw people, you know, trying to blame God or allow God to even take credit for Trump winning. Okay, all this stuff, not so helpful. Let's move away from the finger pointing and the blame, the scapegoating, name calling and all of that. And let's work with each other. Let's try to find common ground. Let's move forward in unity and use logic and loving discussions to discuss these things. Cain is not doing that here. He's shifting the blame. He's not taking responsibility. He's pointing the finger at God and saying, I'm not my brother's keeper. That's your job, I think. Um, you know, it's not just in politics. We see this happening all the time. I don't know, a random example, a factory worker breaks a machine. And the floor manager comes to him and says, what happened? And what, is the, what does the factory worker do? He throws up his hands, shrugs his shoulders, nobody trained me. I wasn't properly trained. <laughs> You know, I was only doing what I was trained to do. That guy, he trained me. It's his fault. He trained me improperly. Yeah, a man gets drunk at a bar, and on his way home, he's, he's driving drunk, and he, he kills somebody. You know what? His defense, legally, here in the United States anyway, can be in court. It's not my fault. The bartender, they should have cut me off. They should have told me I, I was done. I shouldn't have enough drinks. And there's been cases here in the United States where the jury sides with him over that. Yeah, it's the bartender's fault. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the text shows the basic human response when we are caught red-handed doing something wrong. We plead ignorance, and we shift the blame to somebody else. Well, the people before me, they were doing this. I was just doing what everybody else had done. That's sort of what Cain is doing here. It's not as blatant as we make it, but... Cain refuses to take responsibility for his own actions. He says he doesn't know where his brother is, and it's not his responsibility. He's not his brother's keeper. That's God's job. That's God's responsibility. So God must be the one to blame. So Cain, he he blames God, just as we humans love to blame other people and even blame God when we're caught doing something wrong. Again, our our response is usually very similar to Cain's. You know, we we turn the blame back on others, and and very often we turn the blame back on God. We say, you know, don't punish me for this, God. I had no choice. You you dealt me a bad hand in life. You know, it was you. You drove me away. You you didn't give me that job. You didn't give me that, that, uh, help me out with that relationship. You know, I just needed that extra money. I had no choice. I had to go do this. You know, if, if I'd gotten a better hand in life, if you had helped me out in life, 
more, God, I wouldn't have had to do this. I wasn't treated rightly. I wasn't treated fairly. I wasn't treated the way I think I should be treated. I, so I only, I only did what, I, what had to be done. I only did what was necessary. You know, it's not my fault. I'm not in charge of my brother. Uh, the interesting thing here in Genesis 4 is that when Cain sort of says this, sort of points the finger at God, it's not my fault, it's your fault, God. You're, you're supposed to be in charge of my brother, that sort of thing. The very interesting thing about this is that God does not argue with Cain. Uh, just as God did not argue with Cain's parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, after they refused to take responsibility for what they had done, and after they had blamed each other, blamed the serpent, after Adam blamed his wife, and they blamed God, God doesn't argue with them there, and he doesn't argue with Cain here. Instead, in the following verses, in in verses uh, 10 through 12 of Genesis 4, God says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, what has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. Now, I want to spend some time, a significant amount of time, the rest of this podcast episode, sort of talking about that statement that Abel's blood cries out from the ground. But I'm going to do that last, even though it's sort of mentioned first here, and just look at the rest of the verses here before we come back to that. God tells Cain that because he murdered his brother, he is cursed from the ground and, and will no longer be able to farm the ground and, bring, and, and enjoy the fruit of the ground. Uh, instead, he's going to be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. Uh, lots going on here. Remember, Cain was a farmer. He worked the ground. That's what he, he brought fruit to God. And so that's sort of what God is referring to here, what, what Cain enjoyed doing, what Cain was made to do. He's no longer going to be able to do it. The thing is, is also we need to understand here, uh, Cain's, or, or God's words to Cain reflect this ancient perspective about the earth, which we modern people, we don't, we don't really hold to this anymore. Ancient people believed that if someone sinned, their sin would be reflected in their property, in their land even. If a nation sinned, then the nation could expect to experience drought and famine and disease and, and pestilence and earthquakes and floods and enemies coming in and all those sorts of things. All right. And of course, it worked the reverse. If you if your crops were failing and the floods were coming and maybe there was disease and pestilence and enemies, well, then that must mean, this is what they thought, that they had sinned. Uh, this is why you get into sections of Deuteronomy that talk about the blessings and curses that fall upon Israel. You know, whether they obey or disobey God, you can read about some of this in Deuteronomy 28. You know, if they obey God, the rains will come, the sun will shine, the crops will produce food. But if they don't, then the rains will stop, the drought will come, and the crops will fail. Uh, that's sort of an early biblical perspective, though, on the relationship between sin and life, what's going on in the land. Later biblical authors actually disagree with that whole perspective. In fact, a lot of them uh, uh, complain that life works exactly the opposite. Uh, in Psalm 73, for example, the psalmist says, Why do the wicked prosper? <laughs> and why do the rich become, become wealthy while the godly and the righteous, they go hungry? 
right? Lots of us have that question today. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, notice the same thing, and, and he complained to God about it. It's Jeremiah 12. Uh, this is one of the issues that the prophet Habakkuk has with God. He looks around and says, hey, God, <laughs> Uh, life does not work the way we read about in the Bible. What's going on? So, uh, anyway, this view that the righteous will be blessed and, with good crops and safe homes and healthy children, while the wicked, you know, they won't be able to grow anything, want, and they're going to wander around in the world in fear for their lives, that, that whole view eventually just fell out of favor because it just simply did not match reality, what people actually experienced in life. People realize the world doesn't, doesn't actually work that way. Therefore, neither does God. And uh, that's why most people today do not think that just because you obey God, that means you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Life doesn't work that way. And vice versa. Just because you're healthy and wealthy and wise doesn't mean you're, you know, one of God's most holy, blessed people. It just, it, life just does not work that way. Right? So, anyway... With that sort of a perspective, though, you go back and look at Genesis 4 here, and we don't actually see that that's what God is teaching here to Cain either. Uh, Up to this point in the text, frankly, the most righteous person we've seen has been Abel. (laughs) And what happened to Abel? Well, he got murdered. (laughs) Uh, Of course, then there's Jesus. He's the most righteous person in history. And what happened to him? Was he healthy, wealthy, and wise? Well, he was wise, (laughs) Uh, but he certainly wasn't wealthy. And as far as his health goes, well, he died. Uh, in, in his early 30s. He got crucified, tortured by the Roman Empire. Uh, same story goes with most of the apostles and the prophets. They, most of them died penniless or in, or in prison. All right, so, so be careful. If you ever hear these uh, teachers, some radio teachers, TV teachers especially, come along and say, you know, if you obey God, you will become rich. And usually when they say obey God, what they mean is send in money to them. <laughs> you ever notice that? Uh, you know, be generous with God and he'll be generous with you. And by be generous to God, they mean send in money to them. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, the Bible doesn't teach any of that. Don't fall for that trap. Uh, The Bible doesn't teach it and life does not work that way. We should not see God's statement to Cain here in Genesis 4 as evidence that, you know, those who sin, they're always going to have trouble in life and their crops will fail and they'll be vagabonds on the earth. (laughs) Uh, That is what is going to happen to Cain, but it is not a universal principle for all of life. All right, so so that's one point here. But what does happen to Cain? Well, uh, first of all, it's important to note, and I I mentioned this when we were looking at God's words to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. God doesn't curse Adam and Eve, and God is not cursing Cain here either. God does not curse people. Uh, As with God's words to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, God is simply telling Cain what the consequences of his murderous actions will be. Sin curses us. Sin has horrible consequences in our life. And so when God comes along and tells Adam and Eve, here's the curse that's coming along with what you did, God is not saying, I am cursing you with these things. He is just describing to them what will happen as a result of their decisions, right? Sin often has painful, damaging, and destructive consequences. God wants us to, to, to deliver us from those things, which is why he tells us not to do certain things. 
because he wants to withhold our from or, or withhold uh, our fun, but because he wants to keep us from experiencing pain. Uh, sin destroys our livelihood, our family, friendships, health, many other things that we hold dear, and God doesn't want these things to be destroyed, and so he warns us about sin. Uh, in Cain's case, then, God tells him he's no longer going to be able to till the ground and grow food because he's constantly going to be on the run. All right? And that's why. That second statement about him being a fugitive and a vagabond, that is the explanation for why he won't be able to properly till the ground. Uh, to, be, to till the ground, you have to be in one place for a long time. All right, But because Cain is going to be on the run, fearing for his life, fearing for retaliation and revenge against him, he's not going to be able to stick around and plant his crops and till them and water them and pull the weeds and, and harvest them. It's just not going to work for him. All right, And so uh, that's what God is discussing with Cain uh, here. Um, and it's also what God discusses with Cain in verses 13 through 18, a little more detail, and we'll look at that next week. Uh, we'll also see that what Cain does to protect himself and provide for himself now that he fears for his life and uh, cannot produce produce <laughs> from the ground. All right, the, the, point, the point is, from these verses for now, uh, we don't need to take God's words to Cain here as some sort of rule about how sinners will be unsuccessful in life. I mean, frankly, Cain turns out to be quite successful in the rest of his life. Uh, we'll see that next week. Uh, but Cain is never able, here's the point, Cain is never able to go back to his life the way it was before. When he murdered his brother, he also killed his own life. Life the way he liked it. Life the way it was. The point of the text and the, the universal truth of Scripture is that sin has consequences. Negative, disastrous destructive, painful consequences. And God is telling Cain here what those consequences will be. All right, so with all that in mind, let's go back and sort of close out this podcast episode with this statement in Genesis 4.10 about the blood of Abel crying out to God from the ground. Now, first of all, this is a figure of speech. (laughs) Abel's blood isn't literally crying out you know, from the ground, yelling words from the ground to God, all right? Uh, You understand that. Uh, God is just saying here that that he cannot ignore how Cain murdered Abel, all right? But the figure of speech about Cain's blood does point to a truth that is important to understand. And what it points to is that if Abel were to rise from the dead— God is hearing what Abel would say. Uh, God is, the blood of Abel points to the truth of what Abel would say if he were to a- able to rise from the dead and speak. Uh, okay, and, and what would Abel say? Well, we all know what Abel would say. If you've, ever been an innocent, if you've ever been innocent of some crime or something, and someone came along and murdered you, you know, what would you want to say to God about that person? Uh, I don't know about you. I, I know about myself. I know, I know my own heart to some degree. Uh, I know what I would say. I would cry out to God for vengeance, uh, retaliation, payback, right? If I was killed, wrongfully killed, and I could plead my case to God, I would say, God, 
I was wrongfully murdered. Justice demands that you do something about this. Justice requires that you put to death the one who murdered me, God. Now, that's what I would say. Uh, if you're like me, maybe that's what you would say. Um, it's, that's what many humans would say, I think. Uh, I'm convinced that when the text says that the blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground, it was crying to God for justice. It was crying out to God for revenge, retaliation, right? Uh, Abel had done nothing wrong, nothing deserving death, and yet his brother had killed him. And now the blood of Abel cried out to God for justice and you know righteousness by killing Cain in response. So the words which, which the blood of Abel cried out from the ground included words like justice, Revenge, punishment, retaliation, right? One of the verses in the Bible that indicate that these are the type of words that the blood of Abel was crying out to God from the ground, one of the verses that helps us in this is Hebrews 12.24. Hebrews 12.24 says that the blood of Jesus speaks better words than the blood of Abel. Very significant verse in the book of Hebrews. So what words were spoken, maybe I should say are spoken, by the blood of Jesus? Now, to really get an in-depth answer to that question, we would have to study basically Hebrews 9, 10, and 11, everything leading up to Hebrews 12, 24. But uh, you could also go back and look at what Jesus actually said while he was being wrongfully murdered on the cross, and then especially after he rose from the dead and came back. All right? If you go back and listen to what Jesus said during and after his crucifixion, you will see what words are spoken by the blood of Jesus. All right? The blood of Abel, like the blood of all human victims, cries out for justice, revenge, retaliation, right? Those sorts of things. The blood of Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Though though the blood of Abel cried out to God for vengeance, the blood of Jesus cries out from the cross for forgiveness. And then when Jesus rises from the dead, that point is driven home even more. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie or maybe you read a book, where one of the main characters is wrongfully accused and condemned and slandered and bad-mouthed and everything by all of his friends and companions, maybe even his enemies, but then eventually everybody gets on board and they think the worst out of him. He's this horrible villain, this terrible person. And maybe something happens, some accident, who knows what, house burns down, car accident, boat sinks, who knows what, it doesn't really matter what, and everybody thinks he's dead. And everybody says, see, it's judgment of God. God killed him. That evil, horrible, righteous person serves him right. Okay? But he doesn't actually die. And then later, sometime in the book or the movie, he comes back. And everybody thinks, he's back from the dead. He's come back from the dead. All right? Now, in these books or in these movies or TV shows or whatever, what usually happens? 
I mean, you know what happens. You've seen these. I watched a TV show with my wife just this very past week where this very thing happened. Everybody thought the, the main character had died, but he hadn't. Uh, he came back. And what did he come back for? Revenge. Retaliation. To destroy and kill everybody who had been party to his downfall, who had accused him and scapegoated him and killed, thought they were killing him and were celebrating at his death and thinking that it was God's will that he had died. All right, so he came back and he rounded them all up and he basically uh, wanted to kill them all. He, he didn't, but, but you know, it was a day of reckoning. It, it was a day of retaliation, of bloodshed and vengeance. Uh, and that's usually what happens in these sorts of stories. That's the typical human response to such treatment. Since that is so, have you ever been shocked by what Jesus does? After he is wrongfully treated, condemned, accused, tortured, killed, and then he comes back from the dead three days later? You know, if the gospel accounts were a Hollywood production, a movie, Jesus would go through the land arresting all of his accusers, everybody who turned his back and betrayed him in the end, and he would go around hacking off their heads, laying waste to all who opposed him, you know, arresting, imprisoning, getting, getting oaths of fealty from everybody else, okay, and requiring penance and all these sorts of things. That's what he would do if it was a Hollywood production. But Jesus, you look at the Gospels, and Jesus doesn't do any of that. Instead, Jesus just forgives. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Instead of vengeance and retaliation, Jesus offered forgiveness. This is the Jesus way of retaliating. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Yes, that's right. And you know what God's vengeance is? It looks like Jesus. It looks like forgiveness. Look at it this way. Of all the murders that occur in the world, God alone could have truly, righteously retaliated for the unjust murder of his innocent son, right? Everybody's guilty of some things. They may not be completely guilty of everything for which they're accused, everything for which they're arrested and put to death, but they are guilty. Everybody's guilty of some things, right? But not Jesus. And so God alone, or Jesus alone, could have retaliated for the death of Jesus. But instead, we get only forgiveness. Why? Because this is the only way to peace, love, and unity. And guess what? Jesus invites us to follow him in this regard. Most of humanity, when we are wronged, We seek punishment, justice, revenge, retaliation. Jesus does none of those things, and he calls us to follow his pattern in offering forgiveness, love, grace, mercy, and restoration. After Jesus rose from the dead, he gathered his disciples and said, follow me. Right? Follow him how? Just do what he says? No, but also follow his example. How? Rather than seeking retaliation, revenge, instead offering grace, love, mercy, reconciliation, restoration, forgiveness. 
Though the blood of Abel cries out from the ground for vengeance, the blood of Jesus cries out from the cross for forgiveness. The sin of the first man, Adam, brought about the murder of brother against brother. And we have been living in that never-ending cycle of retaliatory vengeance ever since. But the second offering of the second man, Jesus, guess what? It also brought about a murder of brother against brother. And also of man against God, by the way. But instead of vengeance and retaliation, Jesus offered a word of forgiveness, which shows his alternative to retaliation. By the way, this is what I talk about some in my book. But since Jesus perfectly reveals God to us, if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. The way Jesus responded on the cross and in his resurrection reveals to us how God has always behaved towards humans. Look again. Crucifixion is an example. Of all the murders in the world, God could have righteously retaliated against the innocent, the murder of his innocent son, but instead he forgave. Okay, God forgave, showing us the only way to peace, love, and unity is through forgiveness. Okay, but even all the way back here as early as Genesis 4, Genesis 3, all the, this is the way, by the way, to read the entire Old Testament. But right here in Genesis 4, God shows us that he does not engage in revenge and retaliation. Cain kills his brother, and then he lays the blame on God. He says, God, you're the guilty one. You didn't watch out for him very well. At least you didn't tell me to watch out for him, so you're at fault. All right? And if, and if God behaved like us humans, God would have retaliated against Cain right then. Oh, yeah? Watch this as I incinerate you, Cain. Okay? God would have heeded the blood of Abel and struck out in vengeance against Cain. God could have, would have said, let me get this straight, Cain. You murdered your brother, and now you're saying it's my fault? Well, watch what I'm going to do to you. Here comes the pain. Right? If God behaved like a human, he would have set out to prove his innocence. He would have set out to kill any human being who questions how he runs the world. He would have set out to clear his name when we kill others in his name. When we kill others and blame it on him, he would have said, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't tell you to do that. You did that, and now you're blaming it on me. All right, He would do everything within his power to prove that we were wrong when we blame him for everything that goes wrong in the world. But Jesus never did this during his life, his death, or his resurrection. And that means neither does God. In Jesus, we see that God is not like a human, nor is God like the God we imagined him to be. On the cross, when faced with all the blame for our sin and shame, God did not defend himself or retaliate for the wrong done to him, or even the wrong done in his name. Remember, we killed Jesus in God's name. We thought, religious leaders thought, they were killing God, or killing Jesus, to please God. God doesn't even retaliate for that. 
God bears the blame. He takes the shame. Though God is innocent of any wrongdoing, God, in Jesus, let us blame him for every wrongdoing, even the killing of his own son. And why does God do this? Why does he take the blame, shoulder the accusations, accept the guilt and the shame and the finger pointing? Why does he do that? Well, there's lots of reasons. I cover some of them in my book. Let me give you three of those. I just try to close out this episode. Why God shoulders the blame, takes the responsibility, allows us to blame him. First, God allows us to blame him for things he has nothing to do with because he knows that this is the only way to create peace. All right? He knows that if he does not allow us to blame him, then we will simply blame others, which will only lead to more bloodshed, death, and retaliation. All right, when they come and retaliate, seek vengeance against us. So God wants to short-circuit that escalation of violence, that cycle of violence. And he inserts himself into it and says, look, Lay it on me. Blame me so that this cycle of violence and vengeance and retaliation can end. He takes the blame to end the violence and create peace. All right. This leads to the second reason God takes the blame. He does it to show us how much he loves us. Like a father or parent, a mother who truly loves her children will always take a bullet for them. Always going to step in front of that train, push, push us, push the child out of the way. And that's what God does for us. God sacrifices himself and his reputation for our sake. And he does it because he loves us. Of course, God's not an enabler either, right? He wants this behavior to stop. Um... And so at some point, taking the blame for us just enables bad behavior. And so that leads to the third reason God willingly took the blame for our sins and mistakes. He did it so that we could be exposed for how we blame and accuse and scapegoat others. As long as we're blaming other sinful human beings, we never would have been able to see that our blame and accusations were unjustified, that they were wrong. As long as we're blaming other sinful human beings, we can reasonably assume that, well, they deserve the punishment that we heap upon them. They deserve that we call them these names and demonize them and dehumanize them because, look, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just describing the way he really is, this horrible person, or she, this horrible person, Right? I'm just calling them a monster because they really are a monster. Look what they've done. Look what they've said. Best scapegoat's a, a guilty scapegoat. But when we blamed God, and then when we came to see in Jesus that God was completely innocent of everything for which we blamed him, it's then that we saw that blaming and accusing and scapegoating and finger-pointing and demonizing and dehumanizing and blaming it all on God, that's what we humans do. It's the thing we've been doing since the beginning of the world, since the foundation of the world. And it's wrong. 
So God showed up in Jesus Christ as an innocent, perfectly sinless human being and allowed us to accuse him and scapegoat him and slander him, dehumanize him, and then kill him in God's name. And in this way, God exposed to us the lies of what we're doing when we do that, when we blame others and accuse others. All right? They may be guilty of some things, but they are not guilty of everything for which we blame them. And once we see this, once we see that Jesus was innocent, yet we blamed and accused and scapegoated and slandered and dehumanized, demonized him, then we are ready to see, oh, I also do this to other people. And once we see that, once we've seen our face in the mirror of Scripture, it is then that God can say, now stop. Don't do that anymore. Stop it. (laughs) The third reason God bears the blame for sin, here with Cain, with Adam and Eve, with the rest of the Bible, much of human history, is that God wants to reveal us to ourselves and help us see our own hearts, help us see our own face in the mirror of Scripture, so that then God can then call us to live differently, to live like Jesus Christ, and to speak forgiveness rather than revenge and retaliation. Look, there's so much more I could say about this. And I wrote a whole book about it. Uh, and in fact, honestly, I'm writing several other books about it as well. Uh, even, even teaching a course on it. I have so much to say about this. I could talk for hours, and in fact, I have, and I will. Um, future books, future uh, theology courses, future podcast episodes. But i gotta, I got to cut this one short for now. Um, I'm going to try to restrain myself. Look, if you do want to learn more about it, though, and you can't wait for future podcast episodes, this course I'm working on, or the future books I hope to publish next year, I do talk about some of this. It's sort of an introduction to some of this my, in my book, The Atonement of God. Just go to Amazon, search for The Atonement of God, and uh, buy the book, uh, either paperback or Kindle ebook. Uh, there's also a link in the show notes for this, uh, at this episode for, for, the, for that book. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 4, 9 through 12. And I hope you join me next week. We're going to pick back up Genesis 4, 14 and see how Cain responds to God. Uh, we're going to see uh, some, some, something important about how you and I often respond to God as well when he points our sin out to us. Very important study. Look forward to seeing you then. And remember, speak a word of forgiveness, not vengeance and retaliation. That causes us to look like Jesus.